and welcome to Postcards from Heron County, a podcast that delves into some of the heritage of Ontario's West Coast. I'm your host, Mandy Sinclair, and since returning to the area after 20 years away, I have enjoyed rediscovering the county and wanting to know more about the history of the region as I set out exploring the trails, small towns, and more. So I'm inviting you to listen in as I sit down to chat with historians and community members who have a close connection to the topic in question. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge that I am recording at Faux Pop Studios in Goderidge, which is on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Neutral Peoples. I recognize the First Peoples' continued stewardship of the land and water, and that this territory was subject to the Dish with One Spoon wampum, under which multiple nations agreed to care for the land and resources by the Great Lakes in peace. I would also like to acknowledge and recognize the Upper Canada Treaties signed in regards to Huron County, as settlers know it, which include Treaty 29 and Treaty 45 and a half. On today's episode, I'm joined in studio with Monica Virtue to chat about treaties and the mapping work she's undertaken with regards to the Huron Track Treaty, also known as Treaty 29. Thank you so much for joining me today, Monica. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I'm very much looking forward to the knowledge and history you're planning to share with listeners um, based on your mapping research, particularly that on Treaty 29, uh, one of the treaties that covers the area known as Huron County. Before we dive into this topic, though, I'd like to introduce you to listeners. You are a researcher, filmmaker, and designer, and a settler from Woodstock, Ontario, with an interest in events that have taken place on Treaty 29, namely Ipperwash. You like to say that you use maps to solve mysteries, and as part of your master's thesis, you co-designed the Ipperwash Beach Walk, which combined locative storytelling with GPS-guided mapping and countermapping. This project builds on your past experience as a filmmaker specializing in the development of documentaries and real-life stories, and it was awarded the 2016 medal for the Digital Futures Master Program at OCAD's 101st GradX Graduate Exhibition. Your specialties include historical and investigative research, creative story development, field producing, interviews, and camera operation, and you have over 15 years of research experience, with seven of those spent conducting meticulous treaty and land claims research under the guidance of a social justice law firm. You've conducted original research at Collections Canada and Archives Ontario, local archives and museums, courthouses and land registries, and you're particularly adept at finding underlying stories in unexpected places. So much so that in 2015, Klippenstein's barristers and solicitors, who were the lawyers for the estate of the First Nations protester, Anthony Dudley George, hired you to produce an educational documentary known as the Ipperwash Park Film Project. The project was initially scheduled to last six months and was to plug gaps in the knowledge growing out of the ongoing Ipperwash inquiry. You unearthed many unseen documents involving the land transactions at the Ipperwash Beach during your research. Most recently, you co-curated an exhibition called Ningi Waiman, or We Are Going Home in English, at the Lambton County Museum, and the exhibit was also on display at Museum London in London, Ontario. So thank you so much for joining us. Let's get started. From where did your research in treaty and land claim research come from? Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it began with the Ipperwash Park Film Project. Okay. So that was a project executive produced by Dudley George's older brother, Sam George. 
and his lawyer, Murray Klippenstein. So the two of them were uh, responsible for the George versus Harris lawsuit, uh, where they were, they were suing former Premier Mike Harris and the Ontario Provincial Police, looking for information into Dudley's death. Um, that became the Wash Inquiry. So I was filming Sam for a documentary starting in 2003, throughout the inquiry right up until he passed away in 2009 from cancer. So he passed away while I was filming with him. Mm. Um, so that, that plays into it a bit as well um, because Sam had hired me to uh, create this project about how Ipperwash Provincial Park became a park. So how the land was wrongfully taken. Mm -hmm. um, but then he passed away shortly after the inquiry. So he had some unfinished work. And um, I think I've always looked at it and thought, well, somebody has to be doing this. Somebody needs to continue doing this so that Sam sees his vision realized. Mm -hmm. So that Ipperwash Park film project was very cool because one of the first things we did was go to Ottawa to see the treaty. So, and the treaty we're speaking about is Treaty 29? Yeah, yeah, okay. so I saw that in real life. It wasn't real to me. Like back in 2005, when we started this project, everyone around the First Nation would always talk to me about treaties. But that was the only place you ever heard the word treaty mentioned is when you were on the First Nation. So at the time, it certainly wasn't talked about the way it is today at all. Um, like things have changed very rapidly and that's because of the Ipperwash inquiry, which is really cool, uh, because the recommendations that were made, there were a hundred recommendations and part of that was like the Treaty Commission of Ontario. But those are the recommendations that like I am most interested in because I think those can make such a huge impact if they were implemented. Um, but getting this stuff into schools is, it's happening now. It started mm -hmm. happening 2016, 2017. And now, like during Treaty Recognition Week, I'll get asked to speak to classes. And there's like grade seven kids yeah. who know about this stuff almost more than I do. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So it's amazing mm -hmm. how quickly things have changed. Um, but yeah, the, it, seeing the treaty in real life was amazing because it's three pages long and the pages aren't paper, they're parchment. So that's like the skin of a sheep or a goat. So you can actually see the, the spine wow. in the Huron Track Treaty and the ribs right in, in the parchment. And you can see like the wax seals and the dotum markings from the chiefs are on there and ribbon interwoven. And that's when it became really real to me. So I just had this light bulb moment and thought, this is something that people need to know about because at the time nobody was talking about it. And where is the treaty held in Ottawa? It is in Gatineau, Quebec, actually. So okay. Library and Archives Canada mm -hmm. um, has a storage facility just on the other side of the river. So mm -hmm. they're, in, they're in Ottawa and then you just drive across the bridge. And it's this beautiful, at the time it was new, um, but you go down into the basement and that's where all the treaties are. So they have these rolling stacks and they roll the stacks open and like the guy said, these are all treaties. And it's this long 
row floor to ceiling of like drawers wow. that you can open up full of Canada's treaties. And can anybody access these? I think we got special permission because mm -hmm. I had I was filming. So okay. um, Murray ordered it up ahead of time. Mm -hmm. I know at the time we thought Sam George was the only indigenous person to ever see the treaty since it had been signed July 10th, 1827. We found that that's wrong. There's that we know of anyways, there's one other person. And guess who that person is? My treaty workshop partner, David Plain. So, <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, it, it makes total sense why David and I get along so well, mm -hmm. <laughs> because we're both treaty geeks. Like we're both super into this stuff. Um, he said there was an exhibition going on, I think in the 90s. And he went to see it. He happened to be in Ottawa and he got to see the Here and Track Treaty as well. Can you just tell listeners, because I've met David um, on a guided walk, but can you just tell listeners who David Plain is? David Plain is, I'm going to say he's the storyteller. Like every community has a storyteller or like back in the day, it would have been the person who held the wampum belts. Mm -hmm. So David is, he's an historian. He's written, I think, five books. Mm -hmm. um, and him and I just... I think he came out to the Kettle Point powwow one time. I had a, a booth there for my film. I was just trying to let the community know what I was doing with my film on the Wash crisis. So David showed up and that's the first time we met face to face. And then in 2017, after I graduated from my master's, um, the first thing that I started doing is treaty workshops with David and the school boards because it, the curriculum, Indigenous issues were going into the curriculum for the first time, and teachers had no idea how to teach it, and were really nervous about it. So David and I were doing like up to three days long. Wow. We would have a room full of teachers, sometimes a room full of students too. It's mind-blowing seeing kids in grade seven or grade five being able to talk about this stuff. Incredible. Um so just then going into what you and David talk about in your research, so the Anishinaabe have lived um, on the shores of Lake Huron for generations. Can you tell listeners, based on your mapping research, what the area was like pre-contact? Pre-contact. So I can tell the colonial part of it. Mm -hmm. And this is where, over the years I've learned, I wasn't always like this. Like, I was not always a good ally, and I'm, I'm looking back now and realizing colonial versus indigenous is where I was going with this. Okay. I've learned that um, someone like David can tell the exact same story and tell it from a completely different perspective than I can. Now people like David can sit and talk about what this area looked like. And he can tell that, like he could spend hours telling mm -hmm. you what this, what Godridge and Huron County actually physically look like. My specialty is more so what have settlers done to the land? Um, how can we start taking responsibility mm -hmm. for how it's changed? So through the mapping, you really start to realize that we have done incredible damage to the environment. Uh, we've done that through 
changing the course of rivers and waterways. Um, like right now, I couldn't tell you the boundaries of the Huron Track Treaty. And one of the reasons I can't tell you is um, right outside my hometown, just to the north is the Thames River. So one of the boundaries of the Huron Track Treaty is that line along the Thames River. The Piddock Dam was put in. Because the Piddock Dam is there, the course of the river has changed. So you can't look at a Google map in present day and be able to point out where the boundaries of the treaty is because it, the waterway has changed. changed. Mm -hmm. And that has happened all over Canada. Like we've done way more damage than we realize, mm -hmm. made so many more changes to the landscape. Um, even if you were to look at Google Maps, like just pull up Google Maps where you are right now, where mm -hmm. you're sitting right now, and look at, look for the bush. Where's the bush? And you can actually point out where the reserves are mm -hmm. and where the provincial parks are. Try and find bush anywhere else in southern Ontario. It doesn't exist because it's all been flattened to make cities and farm fields. So that used to be the hunting territory of the different indigenous nations who lived around here. And when you look at a map, you realize like maps can be very powerful mm -hmm. in terms of storytelling and helping people to realize um, like it, using visuals to communicate. So David or uh, like there, there's going to be a storyteller in every indigenous community and they're the experts mm -hmm. and they're going to have uh, it's called situated knowledge. Yep. So there's two different kinds of knowledge. There's situated and universal. So universal is something that we all have access to. Mm -hmm. So if you pull up Google Maps, so you're trying to get home, you're looking for the closest Tim Hortons, <laughs> you're accessing universal knowledge that everyone has access to. But there's storytellers or what formerly would have been like the wampum holders um, and wampum agreements, that's another kind of treaty. Um, but those folks have the situated knowledge. So they've got not only the knowledge they've picked up through the years, like um, through their own research, but also the generational knowledge yeah. that's being passed, passed down. down. Mm -hmm. And when you sit down in a room with these folks, it's kind of mind blowing just how much they know. So one of the things I've done, because I can't compete with them, like mm -hmm. I cannot compete with historians no. yeah. and I can't compete with lawyers and I can't compete with graphic designers, but I can combine all of that. I know a little bit about everything and I combine it all together to try and connect the dots, to try and explain to people exactly what we've done to the landscape, um, what we've done to our indigenous allies by changing the landscape you're changing their communities the fabric of their communities mm -hmm. at the same time you're changing the landscape because their their ways of being are so directly connected to the physical environment in a way that it's not for settlers mm -hmm. so yeah like i maps i just find are kind of the key to all this. 
what have been some of your biggest realizations hmm. since you've started doing this research? Oh, goodness. It all depends on the story that I'm yeah. looking at. Okay. Because it, I mean, you can prove some really jaw-dropping stuff. Like if you're researching a land claim, um, like I think of myself more as a private investigator mm -hmm. than anything. Most historians don't focus on the maps, whereas I go to the maps first. And the reason being is that every treaty has a map attached or should have a map attached, right? Because it's, and I should specify every session treaty, because there's two different kinds of treaties. There's the wampum agreements, mm -hmm. and those are the way indigenous people um, confirmed agreements between each other. And it was the exchange of, they could be belts, mm -hmm. like beads woven into belts or beads woven into strings or circles, but they placed very high value on these. So if they made an agreement and they exchanged wampum, that was the real deal. Like you're entering into a relationship and there's a give and take, but that's much different than a session treaty. And that's what the Huron Tract Treaty is. Uh, treaty number 29 is a session treaty. And what that means is that power over the land has been ceded or surrendered is another term associated with this. Um, it means Aboriginal title has been extinguished. And that's a land transaction. And they weren't all land transactions. Like there could be, how do I word that? Sometimes they included like a trade of land mm -hmm. or different terms. Um, some included mineral rights. Some included uh, like a medicine chest. So there was different terms for all these treaties. They're all different all across Canada. So you can't really talk about the terms of one specific treaty and assume it applies to all of them. Um, however, it usually involves the extinguishment of Aboriginal title. So that's something Canadians aren't really familiar with talking about. And that's happened on the Huron Tract Treaty, like Treaty 29? Um, almost 2.2 million acres mm -hmm. has been extinguished. So, I mean, you could do an entire day's podcast <laughs> digging into that even but um all that wasn't extinguished was the four reserves so at the time the treaty was signed there was this understanding that four pieces of land would be reserved exclusively for the indigenous nations so i have had people say and this is where it gets into am i a good ally because mm -hmm. people will say stop using the term reserve. That's offensive. I'm using it in a historical sense in terms of um, there were military reserves, there were clergy reserves. So it's a piece of land reserved for a particular purpose and it's exclusive to that purpose. So in terms of the four First Nation territories within the Huron Tract, there was uh, the Stony Point Reserve or Asalbo Reserve, 
So that became Camp Pepperwash in 1942. So that's one that everyone's kind of familiar with. Mm-hmm. There's the Kettle Point Reserve. So that's still there, um, minus the beachfront. So they lost their beachfront in 1927. That was their surrender meeting. I think 1929 was when it was formally. Um, again, Aboriginal title would have been extinguished on it, leaving the underlying title. So underlying title is what the crown is referring to underlying title when we talk about pipelines at West, right? Mm -hmm. So the core of that argument over pipelines and like, do the indigenous nations out in BC, do they have veto power over the pipelines? Like, does there have to be indigenous consent for a pipeline to go through? So the crown or the federal government is relying on something called underlying title or radical title. And that goes back to the doctrine of discovery. This is getting deep Mm -hmm. (laughs) into it, but the doctrine of discovery basically said like back, we're talking the 1400s when explorers were first coming to Mm -hmm. the continent, um, the Pope had said that anyone who any explorer who landed somewhere where there were no Christians present, they could claim that territory. So there were no Christians present here in North America mm-hmm. at the time the explorers started coming over. So it ended up the British claimed the continent after all these different wars. And they said, well, we have underlying title or we have radical title to the entire continent the only way getting into some complicated legal concepts mm-hmm. but basically aboriginal title you could imagine it as this layer that is layered over top of the radical title mm-hmm. this goes back to the royal proclamation of 1763 which was ratified or confirmed a year later at the treaty of niagara in 1764 and that was where uh, 24 different indigenous nations were there and they all said, yes, we agree to enter into this treaty, this nation to nation agreement, that anything west of the Royal Proclamation line, so that was along the, uh, the 13 colonies, or the line along the Appalachian Mountains. Okay. Anything west of that still had Aboriginal title. And to extinguish Aboriginal title, there had to be a treaty. So this is where the first concepts of treaties session treaties Mm -hmm. comes into play. So prior to that, it was the wampum agreements. And then the British are bringing in the session treaties. I know there were other treaties with other European nations, but um, the British following 1764, it's all British. So that is where the core concepts of treaties is coming from, is from the Royal Proclamation and the Treaty of Niagara. And that is what enabled the Huron Track Treaty. So it, it all ties together. It's mm-hmm. very complicated. Yes. There would be no Canada if it wasn't for treaties. Mm-hmm. So we've entered into this relationship. We've agreed to this relationship. It was supposed to be for eternity. We even exchanged wampum over it. 
So why aren't we honoring those agreements? So you have to start shifting, shifting the paradigm, I guess, mm -hmm. shifting how our brains work when it comes to these kinds of concepts and understanding that they're, they're not old agreements. These are present day living agreements, but it's really difficult to understand that when like the text of the Heron Track Treaty is really, really long. Um, and complicated and there's all these legal terms around it mm -hmm. so it's hard for the average everyday person to to wrap their heads around what that relationship should look like so can you just pull out some of the significant points from the here on tract treaty also known as treaty 29 that was signed on the 10th of july in 1827 um okay so that treaty um, there's an annuity attached. So that meant a yearly payment mm -hmm. in perpetuity forever. I believe it was $10 per person for 440 people, but it's locked in at that. So $10 per indigenous person. Per indigenous person. Okay. So there was 440 at the time. There would have been much more than that, but by 1827, we've had ongoing wars mm -hmm. and by 1827, we're down to 440 in the Heron Tract. So they were still um, receiving an annual annuity mm -hmm. of $10 per person. Um, as long as they lived within the Huron Tract Treaty. Um, I think it was just kind of... It wasn't specific to a person. Okay. It was just saying... Like there was, there was nothing built in saying, well, what if your population goes up? Okay. It was expected that their population would go down. Okay. Because then we also have the master plan, which is assimilation, um, mm -hmm. trying to assimilate indigenous people into the Canadian population. And that was done once the Indian act was brought in. Mm -hmm that really picked up speed, especially things like residential schools. So there's mm -hmm. something um, that Canadians now can mm -hmm. begin to understand is the impact of residential schools. Yeah. There were many, many other sections of the Indian Act that had just as much impact. Um, land surrenders was one of them. So after 1876, when the Indian Act came in, it was no longer treaties no longer nation to nation agreements. Now individual band members or community members could vote. And it was only men <laughs> over the age of 21. Um, and that sounds very democratic, but that's where you get cases of like with the Stony Point beachfront, which eventually became Ipperwash Provincial Park. There was a land surrender in October of 1928 and they had a majority vote yes but then you've got the mayor of Sarnia showing up at the meeting um there was I can tell you the like the kettle point surrender it's the same kind of situation just different players um same Indian agent but that one for sure at kettle point um the the person buying the land Mm -hmm. was showing up at the meeting, which shouldn't have happened, and paying people 
extra money to vote yes. So that changes the dynamic quite a bit. So the Indian Act, I mean, especially in the 1920s, there was mass amounts of land sold off, reserve land. So, so we're talking about like mass amounts of Aboriginal title being extinguished through the Indian Act land surrenders. So what starts out as a reserve that's supposed to be, let's say, 2,446 acres, and it's supposed to be that for eternity. Mm -hmm. And now it starts getting shaved down through these Indian Act surrenders. So you can look at all these different land claims, and I mean, people can make a lot of comments about them, but when you start to dig into the power that the federal government had to influence votes and influence the way these land sales were going, it starts to shift how you view them. Mm -hmm. So let's yeah. just go back to the Huron um, Tract 20, Treaty 29, just on what other significant things you noticed when you were reading the treaty or in your research. Hmm. One thing that got left out of the text of the Huron Tract Treaty was the original oral negotiations. So every treaty across Canada started out as an oral negotiation where you've got the two groups meeting in a room and talking it out what the terms of this relationship are mm -hmm. going to be. So you've got the one side, you've got the Crown, your military officials going after what acreage can we get? And you've got the other side talking about what the relationship is going to be. So there's two completely different mm -hmm. understandings going into about what the purpose of this treaty is. Um, so in terms of the Huron Tract, there's this concept of Dawid, and David Plain talks about this quite a bit. He, he can explain this much better than I can, but it's the idea of sharing a surplus mm -hmm. between allies. So he would say maybe like one group would have excess uh, corn, beans, and squash at the yep. end of a season. The other group would have excess meat, fish, and maple syrup. And they would just give each other their surplus with no expectations mm -hmm. attached and just say, like, you can have this, have our extra, and hit us back later on. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the oral negotiations of the Huron Track Treaty in terms of um, the chiefs were asking if our population goes up and we need more land, you'll give us more land, right? Like our reserves will grow. Mm -hmm. And that expectation wasn't built into the written agreement. So what happened with the written agreement is that the size of the reserves were locked in and could never grow. And instead of this being a back and forth reciprocal relationship where we take care of each other mm -hmm. and look out for each other because we're allies and friends. What's happened is that it's become a real estate deal. Okay. And so for listeners who may not be familiar, the um, Huron Tract Treaty or Treaty 29 that we're discussing covers 2.2 million acres, as you said, of land and extends from Godridge, east beyond Listowel, 
Stratford, Woodstock, and south to Sarnia, as the names that settlers call it. Um, you referenced two of the um, reserves that are located within the Huron Track Treaty. Can you tell us if there were actually four and how were they allocated? Okay, so the other two, and I do apologize, I go all over the place <laughs> because I've been doing this for so long on so mm -hmm. many different projects and they're all kind of related in a way. So the other two reserves were, um, at the time it was called the St. Clair Reserve. Okay. Today we would call it Amshanong. So that's just south of Sarnia. Amshanong used to be over 10,000 acres and it's now around 3,000 acres. And the reason it lost roughly 7,000 acres is the Indian Act surrenders. So Amshanong um, is now sitting next to a bunch of petrochemical factories. And that's why you have, like if you Google Amshanong and environmental racism, there's a perfect example of um, how we've broken a treaty and got, we've gotten around the treaties by using the Indian Act mm -hmm. and now this community is wedged in between chemical factories. And then the fourth reserve was known as the Lower Reserve, um, Moore Township, I believe it was. So it sits just above, or it used to sit just above Sombra. Mm -hmm. So there's the Sombra Township Treaty, and it used to sit just above that. Okay. That was surrendered I'm going to say 1842, 1848. Okay. Quite early. Mm -hmm. uh, so not long after the treaty, that one was already gone. And so you can see like very quickly after the treaty signing, the landscape is changing Ching. rapidly because as soon as Aboriginal title is extinguished, then they can survey townships, the land gets subdivided, it becomes farm fields. This has been a very interesting chat. I'm sure we could I have loads more, and I think you just basically touched on the surface of an, a very important part of the history. So thank you, Monica, so much for joining me in studio today and shedding light on what you've come across in your mapping research of Treaty 29. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. If you're keen to explore the food scene in Huron County, you'll want to know about Tasting Huron County curated food experiences delivered. We do breakfast and picnic deliveries and like to think of these as a delivery from a Huron County-wide farmer's market. All deliveries are abundant and feature products produced right here in the county. But if a walking tour is more your jam, Tasting Huron County's Goddard's Tasting Trail takes visitors on a half-day guided tour of the food scene while mixing in architecture and history. To find out more, visit tastinghuroncounty.ca, that's all one word, for more details. I'd like to thank the Huron Heritage Fund for their support of this podcast. If you're in Huron County, one of my favourite places to wander is the Huron County Museum and the nearby Huron Historic Jail, particularly during special events. And the museum is free for Huron County Library cardholders. I'd like to give a shout out to Community Futures Huron for their support of this podcast. If you're thinking of setting up shop in Huron County, I cannot say enough great things about this team. 
When I was in the exploration stages of creating a PR agency, event company, tasting here in County, I wasn't exactly sure what, but I gleaned an incredible amount of information from the resourceful Community Futures team before finally settling down in Huron County once again. I'd also like to thank Clint Mackey, Andrew Bauk, Nick Vinicombe, and Mark Hussey at Faux Pop Media, who produce and generously support Postcards from Heron County. Thank you so much for listening. If you're a fan of Postcards from Heron County, I would be so grateful if you would rate or review this podcast on your favorite channel or share on your social media networks. Just don't forget to tag me at Postcards from Heron County so I can be sure to thank you for helping share my love of Heron County.